Our scripture this morning is Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 4 through verse 31. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the, of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath." As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they would not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that, time on, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. 
Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of those sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we come to the end of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that we have been studying for several months, and it reminds me of two great joys. The first great joy is that we have the Word of God, and we get to open it up week after week and hear from God Himself. The, the second great joy is that we get to do that together, and that we've done that together. You guys are a joy to preach to, but you're a joy to listen to as well, and it's with great expectation that we should gather as the people of God with the Word of God open before us. That is a, a place where God does great work. Well, with every good stage performance, if you've ever been to a musical or some sort of stage performance, you can kind of get caught up in the drama, caught up in the story and in the music and be moved and, and watch as things go up and down, as things go wrong and things get made right and restored. There's climax and all of that, and you get to this great conclusion of the climax, the story is, is being resolved, and, and everyone is, is delighted, and then you, you cheer, and you're, you're glad that everything has happened well, and then the, the, the performers themselves, they, they come out, and they take a bow, and everyone gives them a hand and cheers, and then after this satisfyingly long cheer, the, the curtain closes, and everyone gets to depart happy. And I wonder when we come to Ezra chapter 13, starting in verse 4, going to the end, if the curtain should have already closed. Like maybe in verse 3, in that section before that, maybe that should have closed the curtain on Ezra and Nehemiah. It, it had certainly had plenty of drama. All right, we saw all sorts of foreign intrigue. We have world powers. The, the Israelites are in captivity to the Babylonians, but then the Babylonians aren't in power anymore. The Persians take over. There's kings that go up and down, rise and fall there. We've seen several different kings. We've seen their different policies, the way they've handled kind of international affairs. The, the affairs in the world are kind of wild and crazy in and of themselves. We've seen that as the Jews went back into the promised land, that there's all sorts of intrigue there as well as there's conspiracies against them, threats made against them. There's all sorts of relational strife and opposition Within the Jews themselves, there's, there's all sorts of tension. There's, there's opposition not just externally to them, but internally. They have all sorts of issues themselves. There's intermarriage relationships that are going askew. There's all sorts of chaos. And yet in the midst of all this, 
God uses them and uses all of these things to bring about the the restoring of the temple and temple worship, the the restoring of the feasts and the festivals that the Jews were were to hold before their God. They even build this wall and they, they finish it with great triumph. They march around it. They sing songs. They dedicate themselves to listen to God and obey his law. I mean, we have gone through the drama. We've reached the climax. We've all started cheering. They've committed themselves again. The curtain should close. And we should all be amazed at what God has done by His grace through the Jews. Let's close the curtains. Let's cheer for Zerubbabel and, and Ezra and, and Nehemiah and give God the standing ovation for what He's done through them and through His people. But the curtain didn't close, did it? All the triumph that we saw as they dedicated the wall and we've kind of brought everything that we've been working for to fruition, all that, in a sense, is kind of undone here at the end of chapter 13. Instead of closing the the curtain, the curtain remains open. And things, instead of being closed when things were in order, here we have it where Nehemiah has to come back and he has to set and reset things again. And there are kind of four sections as we conclude Nehemiah. Three sections where restoration is needed again at the temple, that's 4 through 14, the Sabbath, be 15 through 22 in marriage, 23 through 31. 30 and 31 are kind of a summary, so that's kind of the fourth section. Each section ends with some sort of remember me or remember them statement. And here we are with Nehemiah again having to come back because things aren't in order, because there is restoration needed, because neglect and sin has worked itself in again. And the first section, verses 4 through 14, is the restoration of temple and temple worship. And this is a place where old opponents reassert their influence. Verse 4, before this, Eliashib the prophet, there's an Eliashib that's earlier in the book of Nehemiah. He was considered the, the high priest, and this guy is just the priest, so we don't think it's the same person. He was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and was related to Tobiah. That should be warning number one. But he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked for leave, and then he's going to come back to Jerusalem. Now before this, that's the start of verse 4, it might make us think that maybe this happened before the dedication of the wall, and the dedication of the wall was the closing of the curtain, but that would create some tension with verse 6 when he says that this happened in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. If you remember well, Nehemiah returned to the land in 445. Here we think we're 12 years later in 445. 33, the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. So before this may not be a time reference. Indeed, I don't think it is a specific time reference. 12, chapter 12, verse 44 is a specific time reference on that day. Chapter 13, verse 1, on that day. And so verse 4 doesn't seem to go in that flow. It's more, it's less specific. And, and as one commentator suggests, we should understand the phrase now before this in verse 4 to mean something like in the face of all this, in the face of it all. So I think it seems best to take this time, the end of Nehemiah 13, as 12 years after they dedicated the wall. They've dedicated the wall, Nehemiah at some point in the middle of that has returned to Babylon, returned to his place with the king, and here we are and we're picking up the story. And while the cat's away, the mice will play, right? 
Nehemiah is gone, and, and what happens? Like chaos seems to ensue, and now he comes back and he takes all of this in, and he has to ask leave to come back. So it's not as if they were expecting him back, which may explain some of their actions, but he has some still good working relationship with the king, so much that he can return and ask him and, and receive his request again. So Nehemiah has navigated this whole thing very wisely as he's not only maintained holiness and, and faithfulness to his God, but he's been in good sight of the king, like the king has approved of all that he's done. So here he is, he's in good relationship, and trouble is brewing in Jerusalem. Eliashib, not the high priest, but a priest, he's a relation to Tobiah, and he prepares for Tobiah, this large chamber in the temple. Now, that doesn't sound, again, very shocking to us, like, okay, Tobiah's got some chamber space in the temple, whoop-de-doo, but like, this is a place, the temple, reserved, consecrated for the very purpose of worshiping the one true holy God. And this place that is reserved for that, that is consecrated for that, is now being used for Tobiah's furniture. So not only has his furniture been brought in, but also the things that were there have been taken out. It's, it's a double issue here, that the things that were dedicated toward the Lord and to the worship of the Lord and to provide for the Levites, and as they continue to lead the people of God in, in covenant faithfulness and worship, are, are taken out so that Tobiah's stuff can be brought in. Now, Tobiah, I think it's important for us to look a little bit at who this man is. In chapter 2, verse 10 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is coming back for the good of Jerusalem and the people, but when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, they heard this, it displeased them greatly. What displeased them greatly? That someone would come and seek the welfare of the people of Israel. If you're that kind of person, that's not the kind of person you want in the temple of the God of the people of Israel, taking up space in any capacity. But here Tobiah is. In chapter 6, if you turn there, this was a, a great chapter in Nehemiah of opposition, as Tobiah did his work there. Chapter 6, verse 12, I understood and I saw that God had not sent this man. He's a prophet, that's who he's talking about. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because why? Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. They, they hired a man to lie to Nehemiah so they could take him down. A little bit later in chapter 6, verse 19, uh, Tobiah is sending letters, the very end of verse 19, to make them afraid. This is not a good guy, not a guy to put in the temple. That he is allowed any space in the temple whatsoever, I think, is a pretty stark statement about the state of the worship of God and the state of the people that have allowed this and the state of this priest that would have allowed this. Nehemiah, when he was there 12 years prior, had spent his time, his effort, his energy, had poured his life out for the sake of people like Tobiah, not gaining a foothold of influence among the people of God. And here he has to come back, and what does he see? Tobiah, not just within Jerusalem, not just having influence over the people, not just sending letters, in the very temple itself. And so in verse 7, he takes action. And I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. He sees it for what it is, evil, and he calls it that, and he acts decisively against that. He is acting against evil. And so what does he do? Verse 8, I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah 
out of the chamber. He doesn't just merely relocate it. He throws it out. He gets rid of it. But I want us to see his goal. Verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah calls for cleansing, and he brings back the things that that chamber was meant to house. He brings them back in. In other words, his aim is restoring this to its proper use. He wants the intent of that room to be fulfilled. And so he throws out the things that aren't supposed to be there, and he brings in the things that are supposed to be there. In other words, he empties in order to cleanse. He throws things out in order to bring the right things back in, in order that this place might be a place that would help continue the worship of the one true living God. His anger and his actions are because the temple is being misused, that its intent is being skewed and being pointed in the wrong direction, and they are profaning the temple of a holy God, something that he will not endure. And what's shocking isn't Nehemiah's actions to throw these things out of the temple. What's shocking is the Jews, who are all in unison in some capacity here, to have allowed the profaning of the temple in this way. And really, when we look at Nehemiah's actions, they're just a preview One author says this, that Nehemiah stormed in as violently as one day his master, catch the capital M there, would. You remember when Jesus steps on the scene? There's a time when he visits the temple itself. And as he goes in, he doesn't even get to see a chamber before he's struck with how they're lacking in their worship, to say the least. Not only are they lacking in their worship, they're They're buying and they're selling, they're exchanging goods. And he says that they have made a place that was to be a house of prayer for the nations into a den of robbers. And because of his great zeal for that house and his love for the worship of God and for all the people, the Jews and the nations, that they might have a place to honor and worship God where God and man can meet. In order for that to continue, he, in his great zeal, he takes action. He makes a whip. He overturns tables. He drives out animals and people, gets them out of there, cleansing the temple because their actions were profaning the temple of the holy God, his Father. And his actions might seem shocking too, but again, the most shocking part of that scene isn't Jesus making a whip and driving people out, but the shocking rebellion of people who were called under the name of God, people who would say that they knew God and worshiped God, but had made the temple a place for worship into a den of robbers. That's more shocking. And Jesus acts decisively, but he acts with purpose. What what does he do? He, He cleanses in order to fill it back up. He wants the temple to be a place of worship. He wants the nations to have space to come and honor their God. He wants the people of God, the so called people of God, to worship God. His aim was restored worship. So committed to this was Jesus that he, being the very temple itself, that the place where God and man dwells bodily, that he laid down his life in order to create a community that would worship him, the temple, in spirit and in truth. He let people destroy him so that he would be raised in three days in order to create a community of worshipers. Jesus cleansed the temple, but his cleansing of the temple was just his heating up, in a sense, before his death and resurrection and ascension. And Nehemiah is just kind of heating up too, as we see in chapter 13. 
Verse 10, he finds some more out. Found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padaiah of the Levites as their assistant Hanan, and the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. You want reliable people to lead. As you, Paul, entrust these things to people that you trustworthy, reliable men. That's what you want, he tells Timothy. Remember me, verse 14, oh my God, as he ends this section, concerning this, and don't wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Again, Nehemiah doesn't just come to confront and stir up. That's not his goal is to just like, let's just make this place a beehive of activity and let's get some things done. His aim is the continuation of worship at the temple. In other words, he takes this very seriously that we have things in their proper place that the worship of our God would go forward. His goal is for all of Israel to have life with God under his good reign and his good rule as a people who worship him and center their lives on him. And because of this, their neglect of the temple and of the Levites and of the offerings that they were to give to them is not an option for Nehemiah. And so he takes action. You remember in chapter 10, verse 39, they made a commitment. We are not going to neglect the house of our God. Already, 12 years later, in the first part of this passage, they have broken that commitment. They have neglected the temple. They've neglected the Levites, something they said they weren't to do. The Levites were key They were key in leading the people in covenant faithfulness. They were key in leading the people in the worship of God. They were needed for that. And their neglect of those people and giving them their portions was to say that the worship of God is not super, super important to us. In chapter 10, verse 37, they made a commitment to make sure that they provided for them. Verse 37, we're going to bring the first of our dough and our contributions and the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Here again, they have broken it so much so that their commitments are at the point where the the Levites have to flee because they're not able to eat. So they've fled to their own fields. So as we take in this scene, and we have Eliashib and Tobiah, we know they're this outright defiant against the Lord and His commands. They're they're sinful. Perhaps the Jews are are maybe just uh, making small compromises, thinking that as we move along here, and the things that Eliashib is doing as the priest, and this chamber, well, at least it's not the, the Holy of Holies, and guess we'll deal with it. Perhaps they're just making some small compromises to the covenant, even the covenant commitment that they made in chapter 10, 12 years earlier. Or perhaps they're just outright presumptuous. After all, we're in the promised land right now. God has restored us. The temple's standing, the wall's up. We're doing the right kind of things, and they can presume pretty easily on the mercies of God. Whatever the attitude or besetting sin, Nehemiah doesn't tip us off to either one, but whatever the attitude or besetting sins that are at work there, they're eroding the worship of God. And I wonder how defiance or compromises, small compromises or presumption are eroding worship in our own lives. Individually and as the people of God, certainly outright refusal to obey, defiance, 
isn't compatible with the true worship of God. That will stop worship of God. If you think that I can live in sin and worship God, then, then you, know, you have to know that those things are at odds with one another. You can't love sin and love God. Right? That they are at odds. But perhaps little compromises or presumption are, are a little bit less obvious. They're a little bit slower to do their work. They're a little bit more subtle, but they too equally erode the worship of the one true living God. And my guess is that likely we're far too accepting of, of sinful attitudes, small compromises, or even a presumptuous attitude toward God. That we can be more like the Jews and kind of passively accepting things as they go and less like this very active working, zealous working of Nehemiah who works to restore the worship of God. God's people are to love God with their whole hearts. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are to worship the one true living God in spirit and in truth. They are to offer their whole selves up to God because in view of his mercy, this is the best we can do and we this is the minimum we could do, that we would offer up our entire lives to him to do with as he chooses. And whatever is being accepted that's other than that, less than that, less than our whole hearts, less than our whole selves, needs to be laid down in order that we might worship God rightly in spirit and truth with our whole hearts. We can do this because Jesus laid down his life in order to free us from the power of sin the power of presumptuous thinking that we feel entitled before God. That frees us to see that, that little and small compromises are, are something that we can't endure as His people. We are to be holy. Because He frees us from the power of sin, He, he turns us back holy to God, restores us holy to God, so that we can worship God rightly. To a man like Nehemiah, who is zealous for God, None of the small compromises, the presumption, if that's what's going on, or the outright defiance, none of that's acceptable to him because we're talking about the worship of God. And I pray that would be our attitude as well. We're, we're talking about the worship of God. That The key word there is God. Who is this God? If this is an utmost God, then he's worthy of utmost worship of, from his people. And so it's a matter of utmost importance. So compromises, small or big, presumption before him or just outright defiance we should not endure and so nehemiah he works quickly to restore the temple to right worship and then the next section in chapter in verse 15 we move to section two where he works to restore the sabbath you have a section of the sabbath and then he's going to say another remember me at the end verse 15 in those days i saw in judah people treading wine presses on the sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, they brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. You just hear him here. What is going on that we are doing this on the Sabbath day? The Sabbath is a day that was set aside as a holy day, a day of rest so that the people could turn fully their attention, their affections to worship the one true living God, and they're profaning it. Again, chapter 10, they made a commitment not to do this. Verse 29, we're going to walk according to God's law. One of God's clear laws was to observe the Sabbath, keep it. Chapter 10, verse 31, they go a little bit further. If the peoples of the land, they bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, 
what will we do? We won't buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops on the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And here we are, 12 years later, commitment made in chapter 10, broken again. So much so that verse 17, we hear as Nehemiah take action again. I confronted the nobles. Apparently he holds them accountable and maybe they're primarily accountable. The nobles of Judah. And I said to them, what is this evil? Again, notice his right identification of what's going on and right labeling of it, saying, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Now, what's the big deal with profaning the Sabbath day? We just heard it's a clear disobedience to God's law. He's written it down for them. He's reminded them of it several times. They even committed to keep the Sabbath day in chapter 10. But the Sabbath was something that distinguished Israel as Israel. From all other nations, this is unique. One day in seven, you're going to rest. Why? Because your creator God rested. There's not other nations that would say, hey, anybody, not just the elites, not just those in royalty, everybody gets a day of rest, an avocational day. Don't do your vocation rest on this day. Turn your affection and your worship toward me, especially on this day. It's a holy day. No other nation would do this. They give everybody a day of rest that they might honor and worship their God. This distinguishes Israel. It points to life of these people is more about the creator than the created, the the giver than the gifts. Further, it's a way for God's people to submit to him and order, get this, their very weeks according to how God would have them order it. In other words, they, they can't go a week without being reminded again, God is the God of all of us. We are to submit to him. He has even given us this good command to rest. What kind of God do we have that he would let all of us? We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. We just get to enter into it. This rest, he's commanded it for us. This is a good God. They can't even go a week without being reminded of that. It's a week revolving around devotion to this one true living God. And so Sabbath, it puts work in its place, has a place, but it's not all things. It puts the week and days in its place. It puts worship in its place. And the neglect of it Leads to all sorts of judgment and destruction. Verse 18, Nehemiah says, Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah is not just pulling this out of a hat. He, he knows the story of Israel. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, he says, If you don't listen to me, this is before the exile before they've gone to Babylon and had to return and rebuild the temple and the walls, while they're still standing, if you don't listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and to enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, it sounds exactly like what Nehemiah has seen. Then I'm going to kindle a fire in its gates and I shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. And that's exactly what happened. The the walls were torn down. The temple was destroyed. The people were even taken out of the land. He brings it down to, I mean, it included more, but here's one of them. You're profaning the Sabbath. And Nehemiah has restored these things. Then he comes back 12 years later, and when he looks around, what does he see? You're doing the very thing that led to our exile and judgment and wrath in the first place. I mean, you can just imagine his his mood here. It's like, 
You remember picking up all that rubble, moving it out of the way so that we could build a wall? That happened because of stuff like this, and here you are doing it again? The neglect of the Sabbath, Nehemiah is asserting to them, threatens them with the very wrath that had led them to exile the first time. So what does Nehemiah do? He wants restoration. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And from that time on, they didn't come to the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now, maybe these people hadn't seen with their own eyes what Nehemiah did at the temple when he took Tobiah's stuff and literally threw it out. But somebody did, and the, the news probably traveled fast, especially those who were in and out of the city doing some trading. Like, hey, when Nehemiah says he'll lay hands on you, like, watch out because he throws stuff out of the temple sometimes. And so they don't come back. Makes sense. Like, hey, we may not make any money on this day anyway, and Nehemiah might hurt us. Now, it could just be he's saying, there's going to be punishment. We're not going to allow this, and we're going to bring the right kind of discipline that God has commanded us on the Sabbath to people that will profane this. It might be it, or it might be more. We don't know. He doesn't give us any insight into this. He might say, I'm literally going to lay my hands on you. <laughs> but what does he do? He's restoring the Sabbath so that the people could walk in unison with what God has commanded. He wants them to be restored to their God, to the law. And he works to guard the Sabbath by using gates and walls that he had a hand in building. But the gates and the walls, they were a great physical protection. They were needed physical protection from all their opponents all around, but they were more than that. They were always about more than that. Here they are helping protect, not just from physical enemies, the walls, the gates are helping protect from profaning of the Sabbath. They're, they're, in a sense, in that way, helping protect them from the wrath of God that had been brought upon them because of such acts that they had done in the past. Nehemiah works to safeguard Jerusalem, not just physically by building the walls, but spiritually by obedience to God and leading them in that. Okay, so that's the second section now that he says, remember me, you're storing the Sabbath. But that was only part of the law and the covenant commitment they made that was neglected. He starts this one, in those days, as he did in verse 15. Verse 23, section 3, in those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And intermarriage has been a repeated crisis throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was an issue, again, not of we're worried about race and interracial marriage. This is a problem of faith. We're worried about faith. And, and this, you're thinking that now the people of God can mix with the people of other gods and that that's going to be okay. God says, no, it's not going to be okay. What's going to happen is what we're going to see with Solomon. He's the prime example here. He's, the, he's going to intermarry, and he's going to be drawn away. His heart's drawn away from living God, a tragic situation. And so this is a crisis. That's why in chapter 10, verse 30, again, we keep going back to this commitment they made. They committed themselves, knowing the seriousness of this, knowing that Ezra has made a big deal of this, Nehemiah has made a big deal of this. They commit themselves. Verse 30, we're not going to give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. All right, here we go. So we're not going to do this. And here in chapter 13, 12 years later, it's broken, which creates more, a 
Again, faith issues. Listen to what happens in verse 24. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Speaking other languages is not the issue. Losing a special language is an issue. Right? That's what's going on here. God chose to make himself known in words. We need to glory in that reality that God chose to reveal himself, and he actually wrote it down. He gives us words. He made a covenant with Israel, and he wrote it down so that they would know him in and through this covenant. He is known through these words. So in other words, the words and the hearing of those words and the knowledge of those words and of that language is vital. Ezra, Nehemiah, many others before them, they read those words. They understood those words. They wept over those words for the sake of the people of God, and they obeyed those words, all written in the language of Judah, that is Hebrew. And they want the people of God to follow that example because it's revealing to them who God is and what He desires and what He wants. But now, through these marriages, through the intermingling of, of trying to intermingle faiths, there's all these other languages introduced, which is not a problem other than we're losing the language of Judah. In other words, we are being threatened with the loss of Israel itself. I don't think that's too far to say. One commentator says that it will effectively paganize them. In other words, the people of God will just be a people if they lose this language. Another author says, for a religion in which Scripture plays a central part, grasp of language is vital. A knowledge of the community's language was indispensable. Indeed, it was one of the major factors that distinguished and sustained the community itself. So when we hear this, this command not to give your daughters and sons to the people of other nations, we need to remember the right context, right? We're, we're not excluding other nations. They can join, but they got to be joined to this God, and they can come in. That's okay. Ruth, Rahab, we have all sorts of examples of that. But it's not harsh for God to say that because language issues show why it's a very good command. Because God doesn't want to be drawn away from himself toward a life of destruction, following after false gods in a path of folly. In other words, God is trying in this command to protect his people, that they might live in right relationship with him and one another, that they might know him and love him rightly, and get this for the nations, that they might be an actual light to the nations and not just one of them. They weren't to be just a nation. They were to be a light to those nations. God is trying to protect those nations and his people by this command. I think it's hard to imagine a better strategy to destroy God's people than to remove access to the Word of God. I hope that if we don't have access to the Word of God, you guys don't come here. Like if the, we're not a social club, right? If the Word is missing, what are we doing? And the same true for all the people of God all the time. It would be fine if we were friends and wanted to hang out on Sundays, but apart from the Word, right, would lack the substance that we need to really hold us together and keep us going. Same is true for the people of God. It matters to them. If you want to destroy the people of God, remove access to the Word of God. That's why we need to not just know the Word of God, but hide it in our hearts so that it really can't actually be taken away from us. Do it now while we have all the access to it we can. But the loss of language is a threat to their very identity as God's people. And so again, Nehemiah, he's not going to endure this. He warns them, did not Solomon, verse 26, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women. 
among the many nations. There was no king like him. Get his language. And he's right. He's not just using his own descriptions. Like, this is the description of the scripture. There's been no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women were made, had made even him to sin. Shall we listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Maybe presumption is a problem. Being somewhat presumptuous here to say we could do better than Solomon. He couldn't handle it, but certainly we could. Their very identity is being threatened in this, and he's questioning on that because he loves them and he loves his God. But the problem, it goes a little bit deeper than just in general. In one of the sons, verse 28, of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. Here's the high priest, Eliashib. He was the son-in-law of Sanballat. Again, man, warning signs need to be going off when these people who have constantly threatened the people of God keep inserting into the story. Sanballat's back by connection here. Therefore, I chased him from me. Lacking the details and what that looked like as well. Maybe he made a whip like Jesus as well. And what does he say? Remember them, oh my God, as he ends the third section. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. I mean, this, this problem is as bad as it gets, not because it's as widespread as it could be, but because it's all the way down to the priesthood. That even the priesthood is being profaned by this intermarriage, that the people that are supposed to be set apart for the worship of God and leading the people in the worship of God are even being drawn away because they're giving themselves to foreign women. And sure enough, if one of the opponents of God isn't in connection here, they've neglected previous reforms, not just by Nehemiah, not just their own covenant commitments, previous reforms that Ezra had made and others had made before them. They're neglecting the law of God. And so Nehemiah chases them away. Sometimes that's what good leaders do. Chase the bad guys away. Right? In the New Testament, we see that the pastors are to be shepherds. You know, shepherds need to make sure they're chasing wolves away, fending them off. If not, mutton providers, like we don't need mutton-providing shepherds. We need shepherds that will chase the wolves. That's what good leaders will do. So Nehemiah, in shepherd-like fashion, he, he chases some away. Get them out of here. Can't believe I'm still dealing with another Sanballat issue. And here they are, and he chases them away. But the depth of the offense, the level of the threat, the, the seriousness of all that's happening of this matter is why Nehemiah does what he did in verse 25. You knew I wasn't going to skip over this. I confronted them, cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. He confronts them. The same thing he does, same language in verse 17, which could be a, a way of saying he's arguing his case. He's not flying off the handle. He's arguing his case before them. He curses them. He's not letting expletives fly. He is, this is covenantal language. He's, he's holding them accountable to the covenant. These are, curses are covenant pronouncements. So a little different than the way we use curse. It says he beats them. There are prescribed disciplines in the covenant from God. This is, a, I think, prescribed discipline possibly here. It's not stoning. That was one prescribed discipline. He pulls their hair. Now, this could be that 
they just, he made them shave their hair. That actually could be a complete possibility. You remember in Ezra chapter 9, Ezra has something similar happen to him. He hears about intermarriage, and he kind of implodes where Nehemiah explodes. <laughs> Nehemiah does all this stuff to himself. Like he, or Ezra does all this stuff to himself. He pulls his own hair, and it may be that he just shaved. And, and what that would have been would have been a, a display of, of shame, a display of rebuke, that this is what we have to do because this is our state. And so it could just be that. We shouldn't use this as a prescription to take these kind of actions on people that don't do what we please, right? Or even when we see evil, that now all of a sudden we're going to do this. We're going to confront, we're going to curse, we're going to beat, and we're going to pull some hair. I don't think we have warrant to do any of those things whatsoever. And here's another reason I have for saying that. Listen to how he leaves it. He says, remember them at the end of the section. Remember them. What, what does he do? I, I think that he stays well within the limits of covenant confines. He leaves the ultimate response, their ultimate situation and status. He leaves it to God. He entrusts it to him. Remember them, God. In other words, it's in your hands ultimately. He leaves space for God to do his judging work or accepting work, whatever the work of God is for these people. He leaves that to God. Remember them for that. Now say what you will about his reaction, but here's a man in Nehemiah that knows that holiness is not optional. One author says it this way, throughout this chapter, he stands out from his contemporaries by his refusal to allow for a moment that holiness is negotiable. This is why throughout he, he's, he keeps questioning them. Nehemiah is not, I don't think he's out of control in his anger here. He has some great anger, and he takes some decisive actions, but he's not out of control. He's questioning them all along. Verse 11, why? Why are you doing this? Verse 17, he confronted them. He says, what is this that's going on here? Verse 27, he's going to say it again. He's going to question again. He says, shall we listen to you and do these things? He keeps bringing these questions as he confronts them. In other words, he wants to draw them out of this into right relationship. He's trying to confront them lovingly in a way that gives them space to respond. And then we see that he leaves them to God. Verse 29, he says, Remember them, oh my God, because they have done what? They've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. He leaves it to God because Nehemiah is a man who knows that it's how God views things that ultimately matters that the way God sees things matters most. And because that's true, holiness is not optional. Perhaps we think that his reaction is strong, quite strong, shockingly strong. But maybe we think that because our concern for holiness is so low. Maybe we think that because we see holiness as negotiable or as something that's optional. Nehemiah doesn't see it that way. And the reality is that our view of holiness, whatever it is, is a reflection of our faith in God. It's a reflection of our view of God and who we think He is. So if you have no desire for holiness, if it's negotiable, optional, kind of something on the table, or if you have no desire for it at all, then how could you know this God? who's a holy God. If holiness is, you have no desire for it, then there can't be closeness to a holy God. There's no way you can be brought near to God, be in right relationship with God, and not care, or have any sort of concern for holiness. Holiness shouldn't be an option for God's people, because God is holy, 
And we want to be right with him. And if we're restored to right relationship with God, then all of a sudden we start to take on his characteristics in some ways. We start to reflect him as we are made to as image bearers. And so we start to have holiness and care about holiness because he's holy. It's not optional. It's not negotiable. It's not just something that we could do when we get around to it. It is something we must do. Jesus said, be holy. The, the law has this repeated phrase, be holy. Do this, be holy, because I'm holy is what God says. We're to be people who are, in other words, reserved totally holy for our God. That's the call. Holiness is not an option. And Nehemiah's desire to see holiness reflects his faith, reflects his view of God, and so do his actions and final words. Finish with this final phrase in verse 30. Thus I cleanse from everything foreign, it's kind of a summary statement, and establish the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. You might remember the, the famous words from Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. Or I think of, of Jesus as he's dying on the cross, it's finished. These words don't lack the same punch. He says, I, I cleansed, I established, I provided. But doesn't it seem like we're coming in for a bit of a rough landing? Man, like, we were going along good for a while, and then we thought we could land, but the curtain didn't close at that point, and then we kind of just kind of slammed in, and all right, I did this, remember me, God. And there's this beautiful climax, everything was great, so let's close the curtain and let's hear cheers, but that's not what happens. It's more of, as we end verse 31, like, everything's kind of okay for now, we better close the curtain and really quickly before it gets screwed up again. Something else goes wrong. Nehemiah works to restore, but don't you leave as we, in 31, like a little bit unsettled? Like it's restored-ish. It's okay, maybe. And you just keep thinking, like, how long before it's going to happen again? How, how long? It was only 12 years, and all this chaos has happened when the people of God in the very temple of God, in the priesthood of God. I mean, all this has happened. Within 12 years, we've gone this, we've sunk this low. So now all of a sudden, he's going to come back, and he's going to do a few things, which are, I mean, powerful actions, throwing stuff out, tearing people's hair out, whatever he's doing, like all that stuff. That's powerful actions, but how long is that going to last? What's really needed as we end is one who can be there always. A Nehemiah-type leader but better Nehemiah, because Nehemiah, I mean, he has to come and go, and remember me, reminds us that he's going to die. He's not going to last. He's asking for someone else to remember him, someone else who's going to last. And so we know that Nehemiah is not going to be omnipresent. He's not going to always be there. He's not eternal. What's needing is one who can always be there, kind of this omnipresent leader, reminding them all the time of the, the law, of, of reminding them and calling them all the time into covenant faithfulness. We, we need one who can actually write the law, not just on, if we could just not write it down externally, but you could actually write it on their hearts because the problem wasn't just that Nehemiah comes and goes, but that the people are just going where they're most inclined to go and they're moving away toward God. We need someone to, to actually fix those hearts because they're going to keep going in that direction and leaders can call them back and restore them for a while and there can be faith, but they're going to keep bending back in the other direction. We need one who can write law on the hearts, who can actually change their desires so they, they make these commitments when they desire it most, but they stick with them because that's what they keep desiring the most all the time. We need a, a leader who can cleanse holy, who can establish fully, who can provide eternally. And 400-ish years later, one took on flesh. 
And he did not come for temporary restoration. He didn't come for a little while to things be right and then let's close the curtain real quick before things go mess, get messed up again. He comes to save completely, to give new hearts, to bring new life, to make people new, all the way down to their hearts and their consciences, to transform them and to bend them away from sin and toward God forever. That's what he came to do. The people, we, they didn't just need it. We don't just need a little help, a little repair, and we'll be on our way. We need to be remade. We need a leader who can come and remake us. And Jesus is that leader who comes not to just repair us a little bit, but that we might be born again from above. And here we are in the story. Broken and needing a leader. At the end of Nehemiah, we see the sin and it can be our tendency to look, especially in places in the Old Testament here, and be like, how could you do this again? We might as well be saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that man. Jesus had a parable about that. We are like them. We have the same sin nature. And that's why Jesus had to come. And he came. And he lived this perfect life in perfect obedience to all of the covenant to all of the law, perfectly obeying and worshiping his Father so that his perfection, his obedience could be counted in the place of sinners. He died a, a death that sinners deserved so that he could be the sinner's substitute, so that he could take their place for the punishment and the wrath that they deserved. And he came, and he died, and he rose to create a new community, a community of worshipers who have been completely made new washed and cleansed by his power. And when he's done with that work, only then will the curtain finally close on earth with every knee bowed and tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And while the curtain will close on earth at that time, the after party for those who are in Christ it will just be getting started. And because that's true, of all those who have put all their faith and hope and life in Christ, because that's our great hope, church together, we take a family meal. It is a preview and a foretaste of that after party that we will get one day. Christ has achieved it, won it for us. We only get a part of it because we're connected to him by faith, and we get all the inheritance that he has earned through him. If you are in him, this meal's for you. It is a celebration. It is a foretaste. It's a banquet on the field of battle where we get a taste that one day it, the curtain is going to close and it's going to be over forever. Right now, we get a taste of that while the battle's still ongoing. Be reminded of what Jesus has done, that the battle's won. Look forward to the battle that will ultimately, finally, fully be won. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted fully in him, we say repent and believe in him. He's good. You're more sinful than you can believe, but he's more loving than you would ever hope. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, save people today. We have heard the good news. We have heard what you have done for us that no one else could do. Not great 
brave, bold heroes in the Bible. Not ourselves, but only you can conquer our sin. Only you can make us new and give us new hearts. Only your word can reveal the depth of our sin and how wicked we are and how much we need you. God, will you do that today? You may already be doing it. You may have created new hearts today in this room as people heard the joyful good news proclaimed to Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Grant new hearts today. Jesus, will you continue to save your people, all of us who know you and who love you and who see your holiness? And when we hear your word, we are convicted of sin because we see again that you're holy and we're not we are your temple now and we are unclean your holy spirit dwells within us but we let all kinds of garbage into our hearts not uh, tobiah who needs to be thrown out but i'm sure we all need you to come into our hearts with a whip and